As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. If you enjoy the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, check out our new daily news program, the Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It gives you the day's top stories with context in just 15 minutes. Look for it in your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern every morning. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for a sample of today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak at the very end of this podcast. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. It is a joy after a pandemic to have Abby Joseph Cohen darken the door of our surveillance schools, a studio, I should say. Uh, She is not with Goldman Sachs. It is a whole new world after all for the former Goldman Sachs partner, professor at Columbia Business School, and joins us after giving out bushels of seas this term. (laughs) Wonderful to have you in the studio, Abby. Once again, it's an Abby Joseph Cohen market in that you have to believe in optimism on the American economic experiment, and within all the caution and gloom, equities will rise. Is this a bull market off the October lows, and is it a better time ahead for the stock market? Um, There are quite a few questions embedded in there, Tom, and let me just say I'm delighted to darken your door, Uh, so thank you for the invitation. Um, I I believe that what we're seeing is that investors are thinking differently than many of the talking heads, Uh, many of the, um, the people who are required to make daily comments about what's happening, I think overreacted in some way to daily data or monthly data and forgot to look at things in context. So, for example, um, you know, Michael did a great job of saying, here's where inflation is now, and let's put that in the context of where it was a year ago. And what we basically see is that that inflation is coming down. It takes pressure off of the Fed to continue to raise interest rates. The other thing that we're seeing in the data, not necessarily every week or every month, is that there is ongoing economic growth in the United States. It has been surprisingly good but not relative to consensus expectations, but not really a surprise when you think about the strength of the consumer. Um, When the Fed began to raise interest rates more aggressively more than a year ago, the household balance sheet was in the best condition we have ever seen. Uh, Credit was in very good shape relative to income levels. uh, And we also know that the employment situation has been good 
and has not really shown any deterioration. And in our U.S. economy, that really is the base for economic growth. I wonder, especially on the heels of the CPI report that came in pretty much status quo, we are seeing some sort of disinflation. We also are still seeing that dynamism with Wells Fargo CFO coming out this morning and saying that they're seeing an increase in card spending and real kind of strength there. You put these two together. Do you now buy into the immaculate disinflation, this idea that you could get a new bull market and disinflation even if growth slows? I have been consistently in the camp that we would see some slowing in growth, but no recession, um, and that we could see inflation come down. Um, And part of that is because I've had confidence in the Fed that they would be paying careful attention to the data. And so when we think about what they may or may not do tomorrow, um, I think that um, they have the option to... I don't know if we're going to call it skip or pause, let other people assign something to that. But the thing that I learned as an economist at the Fed is we don't know how long it takes for monetary policy changes to actually affect the economy. And I think that they have already done so much. We already have an inverted yield curve. If I were voting, which I'm not, but if I were a voting member of the FOMC, I would vote for Wait and watch. Well, and that seems to be what the consensus is as far as uh, as far as what mm-hmm. people are expecting. I am wondering, as you advise the boards of in of public investment firms to try to understand how to position, would you say it's time to lean in? That it's time to actually bet on a broadening of the rally, that it's time to really understand that perhaps we're going to go back to something that's a lower yield reality. Yeah, you know, I know that we're all focused on the fact that we're now back to where we were. I think the time to have made a really good decision was late last year or early this year when everyone was so disturbed by what might happen and what I consider to be a low probability scenario, that was really the opportunity. And as I take a look at things now, um, I say, okay, equity valuations are not as appealing to me as they were in November or December, uh, because the PE has risen uh, for the overall market. And so what I'm advising is balance. Number one, we have an opportunity for the first time in ages in fixed income. And I would go with high quality, high quality corporates, treasuries, and so on. You can get four or 5% return on a treasury. Not bad. Number two, in the equity market, I would be looking um, at some of the sectors that haven't performed well. You know, 40% of the S&P 500 roughly is IT and communication. And these are the two sectors that have done so much better than the rest. So if you're concerned about relative valuation, There are some great opportunities in some of the more cyclical areas. And if people increasingly believe that there will not be a recession, that's where you start to look for opportunity. Just real quick here. Do you think that the whole AI hype has been overplayed, that it's kind of starting to uh, get a little concerning? Um, I have been speaking to computer science professors and experts. Never did that at Goldman Sachs. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in computer science, as ancient as that might be. Um, And what they are basically saying is they're kind of nervous about how AI proceeds. Um, There is the sense that if you put good data in, you'll get good results out. And what the scientists are saying is it's not true because the processes that are being used are not really being properly regulated. They are advising 
pilot project so we can see what happens. One <clears throat> other comment quickly, if, Tom, if I may. Please. This Congress hasn't yet figured out how to regulate the Internet. Um, and so we may be pretty far behind in terms of whether <clears throat> there should be some controls over AI. And I'm not talking about anything draconian. I'm just right. talking about guardrails. Uh, and our Congress hasn't yet figured out what to do. I got eight ways to go here and I got 40 seconds. Mr. Costin at the shop downtown goes from 4,000 to 4,500 SPX. I don't want you to play the game he used to play uh, at, at Goldman Sachs, but I do want you to tell me what the second leg of a bull market looks like. The first leg, as you alluded to, is easy money. Mm -hmm. What happens now in a second leg of a presumed bull market? Sure. Um, I've, I've been at that 44, 4,500 level since last December. So I'm not surprised in terms of what we have seen. So when I take a look now at David's forecast, which is very thorough, he's talking about an increase to about 4,700. I think that's reasonable when I look at the profit outlook and also what may, might happen to PEs. Does Lee Bollinger and the rest of Columbia University know your game in the SPX off of Bloomberg? Terminal at school. Are you really doing that? I am not. You're not I, placing I'm trades. I'm doing that at home. But okay, I'm you're, you're on the couch with a laptop at home. Abby Joseph Cohen on a day of inflation. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's check in with Sarah House. She's a senior economist at Wells Fargo. So, Sarah, we've had a couple of minutes here to digest the CPI data. What did you take away from it? Yeah, so I think overall, when we look at the numbers, I think it's consistent with this inflation picture not getting any worse. In some ways, we're seeing it materially better if you look at what's happening with the headline number, how that's stacking up against real average hourly earnings. But at the same time, when we look at the core numbers, they're, they're still somewhat troubling. So we saw for a six consecutive month, monthly increases of 0.4% or higher. So still some work to be done on, on the part of the Fed. Well, the Fed's going to meet tomorrow. I know you're briefing Jerome Powell at 12 <laughs> noon here. Sarah, how does this change the dialogue at the Federal Open Market Committee meetings? So I don't think it changes the outcome of what was heavily signaled before going into the blackout period, that the Fed was likely to pause, skip, whatever you want to call it here in, in June. But I think it still keeps the door open to another hike in July, given that, yes, you have inflation coming down. But when you look at the core numbers, they're still troubling, troublingly high. 
So I think this is moderate enough to to keep that compromise position going and buy Jay Powell a little bit of time and hope that the numbers decelerate more clearly here over the next intermeeting period. Paul, what I see here, Reed Pickard uh, summing it up for Bloomberg News and Bloomberg News reports slowest since March 2021. Okay. It doesn't get you back to no. March of 2020 or even 19. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's, it's a move in the right direction. Exactly. So, I mean, Sarah, when we look at this, you know, X food and energy annualized at 5.3%. I mean, again, that's that's higher than where the Fed would like it to be. But put that in context with this 2% number the Fed continues to throw out there. Is 2% a, a realistic number these days or would, would 3% be okay? So I think in terms of the official target, we're not going to see that change. Okay. So we have to step back and think, okay, first, we're, we're talking CPI numbers this morning. So that's probably more like two and a quarter uh, versus the, the 2%, which matches a little bit better with, with PCE. So I don't think we'll see a change in the official target. But I do think if we get down to you know, maybe not three, but somewhere closer to two and a half percent, I think the Fed can live with that for, for a time. If it means staving off a recession or at least mitigating the damage yeah. to to the labor market, but I think you know this. We're you know we're still looking at some numbers. You know, at least double the Fed's target by by these consumer price in index measures, whether PCE or CPI. Right. That's still uncomfortably high for the Fed. Key question. I don't want to get in trouble with Wells Fargo compliance, but we're going there <laughs> anyway, Sarah House. Oh, do you do you extrapolate the core CPI vector in a linear fashion where you get down to the level you just said? A year out, two years out, two and a half years out, or can you get some form of convexity where we come down with greater rapidity? Can we pull that off? So I think we can see the pace of disinflation pick up over the remainder of this year and on into 2024. So one of the items propping up the core number today was a 4.4% gain in used vehicles. Don't expect that to last based on what's happening with the latest auction data, as well as just what's happening in terms of the financing costs on, on consumers, what's happening on the inventory, the discounting side. And so between that and housing, I think you can get a much more discernible disinflationary path over the coming months. But I think in terms of getting it all the way back to that two, two and a quarter percent rate that yeah. is on par with the Fed's target, that's going to be probably a late 2024, maybe even 2025 period in terms of, of sticking that landing. Okay, so you th might th hit it and bounce, but sticking the landing is going to be Sarah, a multi-year process. One, one final question. This is the raving, the, the raging question. Uh, right now. I mean, the former vice chairman, Richard Clarida, says forget about 2.0. Maybe there was a Taylor rule reality of for years 1.8, even we were subpar 2% for whatever reason. You're saying that as a shop, Wells Fargo says 2.x% is just inappropriate and we have to have as a mission to get back to 2.0%. I think that's the Fed's going to maintain that as their official target, but we think that they will implicitly be comfortable with something, you know, between two, two and a half percent here over the next couple of years. That it's going to be a multi-year process to get it, get inflation back down to where it averages two percent. But we yeah. think that the Fed will be able to live with something closer to two and a half percent, even if that official target right. is is not going to change. When compliance calls, Sarah, just you know, run them over to me on my cell phone. <laughs> right. I'll probably be in the surveillance. 
don't snap, but we'll we'll straighten out. That was that was very good. Sarah House, they're very delicate yep. about some of the f- politics out there. On this day of CPI and clearly an important uh, day of inflation data in America and to be observed worldwide, it is good to speak to any Treasury Secretary. Janet Yellen's occupied, so we'll do better with Jack Lou, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary, joins us uh, this morning. Jack, thank you so much for joining uh, Bloomberg and Bloomberg uh, Surveillance. I'm going to cut to the chase. You were weaned on Joe Moakley out of Boston and on the great Tip O'Neill. And Tip O'Neill understood that technology drove things forward. He was a believer in the big system, the big vision. We come out of a pandemic, we have sky-high inflation, and the dynamics changing. Is this a normal inflation? Is this a normal dynamic that we should fear, or can it lead to a better disinflationary trend, better productivity, and better growth? Well, good to be with you, Tom. And I think it's fair to say that there's nothing normal about going into or coming out of COVID. Um, It was an extraordinary period that required policies that uh, no one had ever uh, had to think about uh, in our lifetimes before. So I don't think there's any surprise that coming out of it, uh, it's a somewhat bumpy path um, with somewhat uh, unpredictable uh, duration in terms of uh, where we're headed and how quickly we get there. I think what's clear is that there's been a trend down in inflation. You know, a lot of the inflation that was supposed to roll off slowly rolled off. But what's left behind is a lingering higher inflation rate than uh, we would like. Uh, What we don't know is uh, when all of the measures kick in, all of the higher interest rates, all of the effects of uh, bank failures, um, where will we be? So I think the cautious approach is still the right one. We have room in the economy for some tightening. Uh, you know, unemployment is very low. Uh, you know, we still have a strong economy, but we're headed towards a slower patch. There's no question about that. Uh, and the question is, will it or won't it become a technical recession? So I think the, the data does matter. Um, and I'm not sure today's news will be the last word. Jack Lou, the, the painful thing, and my colleague John Farrell mentioned this on London and the rest of the United Kingdom in the last hour There seems to be a separation in America, a two Americas that John Edwards talked about, an advantage technology front uh, America that really doesn't care about inflation, and then another America flat on its back. How separate are our two Americas now economically? You know, that's a good question. And I think there's lots of data points that show that it's uh, a growing separation and and a real problem. You know, you were talking a few moments ago about savings rates um, and what are the residual savings from pandemic uh, support and from lower spending when people couldn't go out. It's very different if you're at the top or the bottom of the income uh, spectrum. At the bottom, that savings has been gone for a while. At the top, it isn't going away anytime soon. And I think that has a lot to do with what can people can buy and what people can buy those things. So we do have to ask how are different parts of the economy faring. Although I do wonder how much the fiscal impulse is going to be severely constrained. Do you think that people appreciate how much the recent debt ceiling negotiations will constrain further fiscal spending? Or do you think that it basically uh, was a Band-Aid over something and basically didn't change the narrative in any way? 
So, Lisa, I think the the you know there will be uh, lower spending on the appropriated side. Uh, that's going to have an impact on things that are very important in terms of providing services uh, to the American people. So, I don't want to say it won't have any fiscal impact. But the whole debate was over a small slice of the budget. It wasn't over revenues at all. It wasn't over the large entitlement programs at all. So I don't think we should confuse the size of uh, that deal, you know, which was on the order of $75 billion a year for a couple of years of restrained spending, um, with what a true uh, package of uh, fiscal uh, consolidation would look like. Um, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the question going forward is, will there be continued stability in terms of the federal government not creating anxiety that affects both how individuals and businesses uh, see the economic outlook? Part of the agreement uh, was a kind of technical legislative provision to put pressure on Congress to pass all of the appropriation bills separately, which they haven't done since I was at OMB in the Clinton years. Now, if that happens, everything will go smoothly. If it doesn't happen, you face the prospect of government shutdown, of cuts in defense spending. Um, the noise coming out of Washington in the last few days suggests to me that we're not necessarily done with drama coming from uh, you know, our capital. I'm, this is my shocked face. I do think that people are expecting a bit more in terms of drama on this front. At the same time, when you talk about installing, instilling some confidence in C-suites of some predictability, I do wonder your response to future bank failures at a time when a lot of people are saying, basically, for all intents and purposes, there is a backstop, at least to depositors, basically promised by the Treasury Department and interference promised by the Fed? Well, look, I, I, I think they uh, regulators uh, and Treasury have made clear that they will do what they have to to prevent systemic uh, uh, crisis from occurring. Um, they haven't been terribly clear over whether that means in every single case. You know, there are uh, continue to be normal workouts of troubled banks. So not everything is in the case of the, 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 the regulators will step in. Look, I don't think we're done seeing the impact of, uh, of higher interest rates uh, on pressure on uh, financial institutions. You add to that the pressure uh, that comes from uh, from commercial real estate values uh, being below where they were just a, a short period ago. Um, so there's going to be some stress in the system. I think looking ahead, the thing that ought to happen is reflected in what policymakers have said, which is that there has to be more careful oversight of mid-sized financial institutions, particularly growing mid-sized financial institutions, so that we don't have as many surprises in the future. I don't know exactly what shape that will take, but I do think that's a very important uh, discussion and rolling back that oversight a few years ago, I thought was a mistake at the time. And I was glad to hear that that uh, thinking has changed back to, we have to keep an eye on things. Jag, one final comment. We've got to say happy anniversary. It's almost 10 years to the day that you unveiled a new signature. Can you believe that was a decade ago, Jack? Can you believe that was uh, 10 years ago? It is very hard to believe that it's 10 years ago. <laughs> Isn't that amazing, TK? And, the and signature is an, it, it's original. Well, it's changed. <laughs> go on, Jack. And I still get them when I go to the money machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's gold. <laughs> the old ones, Jack, or the new version with the newer uh, the, signature? You get a pretty good. No, I only had one. 
And there was only one signature. Oh, so they never got the new they never got the new signature oh, they, under. They said we'd like no, a redo of amazing. this if possible. <laughs> Can I just say that you've given my my children hope because they often will say when we're trying to develop a, a signature, they will look at yours and say, "Look, we can be creative with it." So yeah. <laughs> the only thing I say is, don't blame my grade school teachers. They tried. <laughs> Jack Lou, thank you, sir, for being a good sport as well. The former U.S. Treasury Secretary, Jack Lou. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, and this has been just a joy for us over the recent weeks, Wendy Schiller joins us, director of Taubman Center, Brown University. Wendy, we're squeezed for time today. Let's just cut to the chase. It is truly an original moment. This is not in your classic textbook. How will you place a new chapter into your textbook? Well, in some ways, I think that this is a development for the democracy. And if you're a Trump supporter, you say, oh, this is terrible and it's a political witch hunt. But if you think about it, why should presidents be shielded from behavior, if it's criminal, whether it's federally criminal or breaking a state law, when they're president. I mean, they should be held accountable. This is an evolution of where we are. Latin America, we know, oh, you know, we don't want to be like them. But even Europe now, Nicola Sturgeon was was held just the other day, you know, former leader of Scotland uh, for things she might have done or her husband might have done for their party. You know, democracies have to have a rule of law. And if you let the most powerful operator in the democracy break the law, because they're insulated from prosecution when they're president, they're probably going to do that. And that's not something I think we want in the 21st century. So I'm not as pers- you know, perturbed or disturbed by this. I don't think it's a political witch hunt. Uh, I am concerned that when Democrats get out of office, the same thing will happen. But there's a, there is a rule of law. And if you break the law, you need to be held accountable. There's the prosecution and then there's the response publicly where people who are for the former president are still for him and do believe that this is some sort of undermining of the institutions. What's your takeaway from that when you teach your political history classes at Brown? Well, I mean, political loyalty has turned into, um, you know, uh, very fierce support and sometimes violence in the entire history of the country. That is not new. We have to see what happens today. How many will come out and go to a rally in the, you know, not that hot weather, we think maybe in Miami today. Uh, But is that the same as, you know, committing violence or trying to upend the system entirely just to save this one person? Uh, It's a larger problem for the Republican Party going down the line. They really, in the end of the day, you know, McCarthy's answer was quite weak. You know, there's a bathroom lock. There's a lock on the bathroom door. That's, you know, this is the Espionage Act. These are military secrets. Is this man capable of being entrusted with national security? That becomes a larger issue as this trial proceeds for the Republican Party and those other people running for office in 2024 in the Republican Party. Putting aside Kevin McCarthy's response, you can come to whatever your conclusion that 
you'd like uh, to come to that, there is an issue of at what point Republican nominees or potential nominees start to push back against what former President Trump is facing up against or starts to put a little bit more credence in the judicial system. Do you expect that to be the case or do you think that there will continue to be support and import around backing the former president and really kind of sticking with that line? Well, Lisa, that's an that's a, that's the you know very important question, and we have to ask ourselves over the next couple of months. The question is, in the polling, they've got to win the primary. I mean, this is the most uh, devoted Republican voters, but a lot of independents in some states with open registration vote in the Republican primary. You know, they maybe voted Republican before Trump. They've left Trump in majority numbers in the last couple of years. But, you know, will they vote Republican primaries? And if independent voters do do that, right, they vote in Republican primaries, they're not going to want this guy. And how do you balance that? And then, of course, in the general election, we know they're not going to vote for this guy. So this is the big question for those other people running. You don't want to alienate your core base of Trump supporters. On the other hand, other people vote in those Republican primaries, too. And they're just going to get sick of this especially if there's a Georgia indictment or January 6th indictment. Yeah. You know, this guy just becomes too much of a liability. Uh, and then you, you risk losing turnout in 2024 among that base for Republicans. Wendy, I have 30 seconds. What kind of legal representation does the former president have today? Uh, it, I think they were scrambling as of yesterday, so I'm not even quite sure. Uh, but then you have to ask yourself that question, too, is at what point does he lose the capability of getting the very best minds in the country to try to defend him? And let's not forget the judge. This judge sort of got in trouble for the way that she handled this case earlier uh, in its proceedings. But, you know, what does she do now? And does she continue along that path or does she sort of more conform with uh, regular judicial standards in the federal judiciary. Wendy Schiller of Brown University. Wendy, we'll be talking soon, no doubt. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Now stay tuned for today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. It's your daily news podcast, delivering today's top stories to your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern. It's all the news you need in just 15 minutes. The Bloomberg Daybreak podcast. It starts right now. From the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, this is Bloomberg Daybreak for Tuesday, June 13th. Coming up today. Arraignment day in Miami. Former President Trump prepares to face charges in the classified documents probe. Wall Street braces for the latest inflation report as the Fed meets on interest rates. Apple and Oracle hit all-time highs. And New York City offices hit a post-pandemic milestone. Ukraine says it has liberated several villages from the Russians in recent days, plus New York City is looking for a new police commissioner. I'm Mike LeVar. More ahead. I'm John Stash, Aaron Sports. The Denver Nuggets have won their first NBA championship. The Subway Series begins tonight at City Field. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak, the business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast. Each morning on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. 
Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Amy Morris. Here are the stories we're following today. It could be a tense day in Miami. Up to 50,000 people are expected to turn out at the city's federal courthouse. That is where former President Donald Trump will enter a plea to federal charges over his handling of classified documents. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the former president is being treated unfairly when compared to the current president. When you're looking now at a current president that has documents sitting behind his, his uh, automobile in a garage that date all the way back to a senator, that raises a lot. If you're charging one and not charging the other, you raid one house, but you don't raid the other. But Trump's former acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, says this case is different. How often have we seen, you know, throughout our political history, throughout business history, it's really not the crime, right? It's the cover-up that gets people in trouble. Uh, Watergate was not about the break-in. It was about the cover-up of the break-in. Former Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney spoke with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Sound On. Catch the program weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Former President Trump's arraignment is set for three this afternoon in Miami. And we'll have much more on Donald Trump's day in court coming up shortly. But first, we turn to the markets. Both the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 are trading at their highest level since April of 2022. There's optimism the Fed will pause rate hikes. The central bank kicks off its two-day meeting today. Also today, we get the May reading on U.S. inflation. Let's get more on that from Bloomberg's Michael McKee. Economists say consumer price inflation slowed in May, led lower by falling energy and automobile prices. Disinflation in rent may finally show up, holding down the core rate. Meanwhile, base effects, high inflation a year ago, mean a big drop in overall inflation this year. At least, that's the forecast. If analysts are wrong, however, watch out. Higher-than-anticipated inflation will change expectations for the Fed policy decision due Wednesday, with officials divided over whether to raise rates or make no change, an inflation surprise would lead to big market moves. Michael McKee, Bloomberg Daybreak. Okay, Mike, thank you. And rates are also in focus in Asia. Bloomberg News has learned China is considering a broad package of stimulus measures, including interest rate cuts, to boost the world's second largest economy. Sources say that stimulus would include at least a dozen measures designed to support areas like real estate and domestic demand. And speaking of real estate, New York City has achieved a major post-pandemic milestone. We get those details from Bloomberg's Jeff Bellinger. Office occupancy in the city topped 50% for the first time since workplaces emptied out at the start of the pandemic. The security company Castle Systems provided the data. Castle calculates the number of workers entering buildings by tracking security card swipes. More workers returned to offices despite the city being engulfed in smoke from wildfires burning in Canada. Jeff Bellinger. Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, Jeff, thank you. Back to markets now. We're watching a couple of stocks trading at all-time highs this morning. Apple's at its highest level in more than a year, the latest sign of big tech reclaiming leadership in equities. The latest rally comes after Apple unveiled its Vision Pro mixed reality headset. And shares of Oracle also hitting records. They're up more than 4% in early trading after the company reported quarterly revenue that topped estimates. Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet has those details. It signals the software maker's cloud business is benefiting from heightened demand for artificial intelligence workloads. Sales increased 17% to $13.8 billion in the fiscal fourth quarter. Analysts on average estimated $13.7 billion, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. Oracle has focused on expanding its cloud infrastructure business to more forcefully compete with Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet's Google, all of which have seen recent 
recent slowdowns. In New York, Charlie Pellet, Bloomberg Daybreak. Charlie, thanks. Shares of Intel are also on the rise. They're up more than 1%. Bloomberg News has learned Intel is among companies British chip designer Arm has been talking with about anchoring its IPO this year. Arm is looking to raise as much as $10 billion in its New York listing. On the flip side, Microsoft is under fire from U.S. regulators. They're suing the tech giant to stop it from completing its acquisition of Activision Blizzard. The Federal Trade Commission wants a court order to block the deal from going through until the agency's in-house court can review the $69 billion deal. Over in Europe, Amy, the boss at Barclays says a reshuffle in its investment bank has top dealmakers leaving. C.S. Venkata Christians replaced the heads of his investment arm earlier this year as part of a shift to focus on Europe. He tells Bloomberg's David Weston the move is about looking ahead to the next decade of banking. It's not a shift so much as an expansion. It is to try to give more attention to Europe, relatively speaking. The U.S. remains critically important to us. Barclays CEO Venkata Krishnan is head of the world's largest non-U.S. investment bank. And one note on the airline industry this morning. United is offering its pilots the biggest deal ever for a mainland U.S. carrier. The airline is making a contract offer to pilots with incremental value in excess of $8 billion over four years. Time now to take a look at some of the other stories making news in New York and around the world. For that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Nathan. New York City's police commissioner has abruptly resigned. Keechan Sewell, the first woman ever to lead the New York City Police Department, announced her resignation by surprise in a letter addressed to the rank and file. In it, Sewell wrote she has witnessed their compassion, heroics, and selflessness on a daily basis, calling them hardworking public servants. Former NYPD Chief of Detectives Robert Boyce credits Sewell for working to reduce the city's crime rate on her watch. If you look at the numbers, the violence numbers, they've come down dramatically. You know, 24% reduction in shootings, 14% uh, reduction in, in homicide. Things that she's done and the way she's carried herself with the line of duty families, a big loss that uh, we're going to talk about for quite some time. Mayor Eric Adams issued a statement thanking her for her work. Officials in Lockport, New York, say one person died and multiple people are in the hospital after a boat capsized during a tour of an underground cavern system built to carry water from the Erie Canal. Police and fire crews were called to the Lockport cave tours after authorities say 29 people were aboard the boat when it flipped, sending them into the water up to six feet deep. Fire Chief Luca Quagliano. The boat can safely handle up to 40 people. There was 29 on it at the time. Somehow at the end of the cave uh, or the the destination, that 300 feet section there, the boat became unbalanced and capsized. Chief Quagliano says 11 people were sent to local hospitals with minor injuries. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he hopes the Ukrainian offensive now underway will force Russian President Vladimir Putin into talks to end his invasion. Ukraine says it has liberated several villages from the Russians in recent days. However, a regional governor says at least three people have been killed and 25 wounded after missiles hit civilian buildings in an overnight attack in President Zelensky's hometown. The governor of Illinois signed into law a bill that would prevent book bans in the state, the first legislation of its kind. Pat Sajak, who has hosted the hit game show Wheel of Fortune since 1981, says he will retire next year. Sajak, who is 76, says it has been a wonderful ride. 
Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg Nathan. That man sold a lot of vowels. Uh. Thank you, Michael. Time for the Bloomberg Sports Update, brought to you by Tri-State Audi. Good morning, John Stashauer. Good morning, Nathan. The NBA season is over with a first-time champion. The Heat will let it play out. It's over. At last, the long wait is over. After 47 years, the Denver Nuggets can finally call themselves NBA champions. That's all on ABC. Denver beat Miami in Game 5, 94-89. That's a score you used to see back in the 1990s. It was that kind of a game. Rugged defense. Both teams struggled to score. They combined to make only 14 out of 63 three-pointers. The Heat led for most of the night. Denver made a run fourth quarter. Then Jimmy Butler got hot, put Miami back ahead. But Butler would commit a costly turnover in the final minute. Nikola Jokic, finals MVP, led everyone in the playoffs in scoring, rebounding, and assists. First to ever do that. The second June in a row where they are celebrating in Denver. The Avalanche last year won the Stanley Cup, and the Cup will be in the house tonight in Las Vegas. Golden Knights up 3-1 on Florida. Also tonight, start of a two-game Subway Series at City Field. Luis Severino for the Yankees, who just had a 2-4 and four homestand. Max Scherzer for the Mets, who've lost eight of their last nine. The Mets have signed to former Yankee Luke Voigt. Just released by Milwaukee, he'll report to AAA. Saquon Barkley not reporting to the Giants' minicamp this week. All eyes on July 17th. That's the deadline for the Giants to sign Barkley long-term. If they don't, he'll either play for the $10 million franchise tag or sit out the season. The U.S. Open tees off Thursday in L.A. and two former champions will play together. Brooks Kepka, who left the PGA Tour for Liv, and Rory McIlroy, who was outspoken in his criticism. John Stashauer, Bloomberg Sports. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. The city of Miami is bracing for potentially big crowds and the possibility of protest as former President Donald Trump gets ready to enter a plea to dozens of counts later today at the city's federal courthouse. For more, we are joined by Bloomberg News senior editor Bill Ferries, who, as it happens, used to lead Bloomberg's bureau in Miami. It's good to speak with you again, Bill. Is the city you used to know ready for what's coming this afternoon? Thanks, Nathan. Uh, listen, the mayor and uh, and the police chief for Miami-Dade and uh, and the city of Miami have all said that they're prepared. They are. They don't. They admit they don't really know what to expect. Uh, they estimated crowds could be anywhere from uh, a few thousand to fifty thousand, depending on how many of the former president's supporters and his opponents all convene at that courthouse where the. Uh, former president is expected to uh, to appear at 3 p.m. today. Let's talk about a little bit what we do know is going to happen. Walk us through uh, what is expected when the president faces those charges this afternoon. Well, uh, the first thing we'll be looking for really is who's with him. Uh, as you know, and your listeners know, um, a couple of his key lawyers who have been guiding him through this process uh, quit in the last week or so. So I think the first thing we'll be looking for when the president makes his appearance is uh, who is alongside him, who is representing him. He needs to have uh, he needs to have lawyers who are authorized by, at the Florida bar. Um, so that's been, I think, a focus of the president and his allies over the last few days as he prepares for this. When he gets into the courtroom, uh, he's going to have to uh, presumably uh, plead 
innocent, uh, he said he's innocent, to all 37 uh, counts across seven charges, uh, all relating to his, uh, his storage of classified, alleged storage of classified material at the Mar-a-Lago resort. So, uh, and we, you know, after, after that, after that ends, we'll, uh, we'll get a better sense, I think, of the timeline of this court case. We do expect it to uh, bleed well into next year's presidential primaries and possibly the election. And uh, we're not expecting right now the president to necessarily address his supporters outside the courthouse. Uh, there's been talk that he will uh, go back to his, uh, his club in, in New Jersey and uh, perhaps give a speech there. Uh, but uh, everything, you know, we've never seen anything like this and, uh, and anything is possible. So uh, we'll be we'll be watching closely to see how the president moves forward. Apart from entering a plea today, Bill, are we expecting that we're going to get any glimpses either from the special counsel, the federal prosecutors who are mounting this case or from uh, Trump's defense attorneys, whoever they may be, as to uh, how this case could go forward in terms of the arguments that they might pursue? Yeah, I think, you know, in the case of uh, former President Trump, uh, there's always two sides to this. He, uh, he he obviously has always made a lot of his arguments against these kind of things public. Um, it's not clear that that will carry as much weight in the courtroom. Uh, but we will, I think, from he and his lawyers get a sense of, you know, whether they're going to contest uh, some of these, some of the some of the means, some of the evidence that uh, the federal government is uh, saying that they've built up against him. Uh, we may get a sense of their strategy in terms of trying to drag the timeline timeline of this uh, of this case out, whether by uh, calling for some of the classified material to be to be uh, made public in the courtroom uh, or other procedures. I mean, uh, the former president has a history of, of trying to uh, delay and drag out court proceedings. So I would expect we'll start to get a sense of that, uh, perhaps. Uh, in the courtroom or when his lawyers leave and uh, and they issue some statements about how they feel the day has gone. Of course, we've seen the political impact already, Bill, in our last minute here. Uh, we've heard Republicans defend the former president, saying there's a double standard. At the same time, we're hearing from uh, some pretty powerful Republicans questioning the former president's electability now that uh, he's facing these charges. How significant is that that we're hearing from the likes of John Cornyn uh, questioning the former president? Yeah, I think there are some Republicans who are in uh, in Trump's corner uh, as president who are uh, who want to move on, uh, who think that maybe uh, even if this is rallying uh, the the traditional base, the primary voters who back Trump, that it's really going to do the Republican Party damage in uh, in the general election next year. So uh, that's I think they're looking ahead to that with a big question mark. And you've seen a couple of uh, Donald Trump's opponents in the primaries now. Nikki Haley and um, and uh, Tim Scott, I believe, um, both kind of come out with some cautious words, uh, cautious criticism of what they uh, what they read in that uh, indictment against the former president. So the tide has turned a little, but obviously he still has that big base of support to back uh, to back him up. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts.
You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Amy Morris. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.